we did this a couple episodes ago and I enjoyed it. Let's see if it works with us here too, Libby. Where would you imagine having this conversation? So I, I we had one at a coffee shop and uh, I'm just, we're going to visualize because I want to put myself in that mindset. So for me, walk on the, on the ocean. If I'm walking on the ocean, bare feet in the water, it just sends positive vibes. I was just going to say hiking in the mountains, but walking on the ocean is perfect too. Let's go on a hike. I could do a hike. All right. I am, I'm in a valley surrounded by mountains. So. And uh, as we're hiking, my first question is going to be this. And I was, last night I was thinking about your journey. Multiple continents, eight schools, an incredible professional career, including being an executive at Universal, Turner, and Sony. You've written five books, including an award winner. You are a guest speaker. Seven. Seven books, but who's counting? The seventh has yet to come out. You are a speaker. You're a coach. You're also constantly appearing on the news. Libby, my f- first question to you as we look onto the mountains, what drives you? Well, first, my family. It's, I, I grew up in a family with trauma and chaos. And I, from a very early age, knew that that was not the kind of family I wanted. And yet, I had illnesses in my in, in my immediate family and challenges and lots of things to uh, deal with and overcome. And so that was the first most important thing. And next are the people that I serve. So it's all about the people. I never really cared too much about money. I certainly like my creature comforts, but nothing I've ever done. <laughs> certainly writing books and working and in uh, different capacities and, you know, serving on a mental health board, all of those things were not driven by, by finances. Um, But the opportunity to make a difference in people's lives. And that sounds so cliche, but just recently I've taken over guardianship of my disabled brother. And he said to me, I'm such a burden. I know how much chaos I've caused in your life. I said, are you kidding me? You are a joy. And he said, he burst into tears, you know, this grown man and said, no one has ever said that to me except for you. And I thought, well, they've missed the opportunity to experience the joy of taking care of someone else. And so that's sort of it. That's, I guess, I feel like that's what I was put here on the earth to do. And it has a lot to do with providing people with a sense of hope that the future will be better than what they're, whatever they're experiencing today, that they are moving towards something even better. Oh, wow, Libby, thank you for sharing. We haven't discussed this up until this moment. Um, And it shows up in your work, from your books to your videos, this idea of reframing, this idea of um, being intentional and conscious about how we look at things around us. Before we dive into that, typically in these episodes we talk, we pick a goal like a a CEO level goal, like turnover. And then we talk about the different initiatives that the organization can launch specifically around people initiatives, onboarding, leadership development. And then we talk about the mindset that's inside the organization, stress, anxieties, challenges of that kind. But today where I'd like to begin, I want to talk about the CEO mindset. So I was looking at recent research where over 72% are anxious about their own positions. 57% 57% of CEOs said they fear their company is not implementing change fast enough. 
and they all have lives, right? Our, the CEO lives, as you mentioned, what they've went through, what they're going through now. Libby, could you take us into the mindset of the executives as you see it today? It's been such an interesting time in our history. And just going back to what we were talking about, I, I do believe adversity and how you manage it makes you a much stronger or a much more frail person. And CEOs are no different than that. And having gone through this pandemic, which changed everyone, I mean, everyone in the world has been changed by this in some way. And so seeing companies that have flourished because they've had to become more efficient, had to change operations, had to learn, as we've now heard the word pivot about a gazillion times, mm. they've had to make those pivots and they either did it and saw something in, their, in themselves that they hadn't seen before, this resourcefulness, this resilience, this uh, nimbleness, or they didn't flourish and they suffered the consequences. But now I see with the people that I coach and speak to, they're in this moment of, whoa, we got through that and it was such a challenge. But now what? You know, we're, we're emerging from that. And, and now people are looking at change in whole new ways, thinking, well, gosh, we sort of thought we'd get through that and we'd all be okay again. But what they discovered is they can't go back. Everything is different now. They've got to change. I talked to a lot of non-technical companies about how they've got to overhaul their entire technical systems. And that's not an area of my expertise, but it drives everything in today's world and today's business. So people are looking at how do you make these sweeping and innovative changes without sort of throwing out the baby with the bathwater? How do you keep the foundation that has gotten you to this point and keep that intact even as you change it and iterate it along the way to get to the next future? And I think that's what people are thinking about. No doubt. And let's unpack the first group and then the second group. The first group is the one that's not flourishing, likely to be the majority, right? That's C-level executives that are in this, you know, whether it be constant stress, anxiety, uh, afraid of their own shadows. I think in one of your talks, you said you know, their head is in the sand. And, and I can relate. I, I, I felt often over the last couple of years like that executive, right? Even thinking about getting on the Zoom video, it was sending chills down my spinal cord because I, 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 you know, I didn't know how I'm going to show up. I was almost, my, my brain was almost going into this fight or flight, checking out, and then I would be checking in with myself on the other side, how the heck did it go, and uh, immediately trying to distract myself. So Libby, that group that isn't flourishing, what happens, what would you say to them to, you know, is it, is it time for you to either move on or here's the path forward? Well, they've got to power through it because whatever fueled them in the past or even what they're doing now is not going to serve them in the future. So if they're going to succeed and sustain, they have to find their way through that. And what you're saying about getting on the Zoom, which obviously is a low-level risk, you weren't going to be shunned from the community or thrown out of your house um, for hopping on a Zoom and, and whatever could have gone wrong. I don't know what that is. You couldn't find your audio switch or whatever. Um, but we have this what I call the immediate negative response. 
this kind of knee-jerk reaction to the fear of something new or different or something we have not yet, yet mastered. And that's simply our survival instinct. That's our biological hardwiring that keeps us alive. Let's go the proven path. Let's go the safe route. Even companies, I talked to a very successful company um, in Virginia two days ago, and they're at this point of explosive growth. They've done really well. And now people, the concern there is, well, what happens if we try something new and it doesn't work? If we just keep going down this path, we already know we're successful. But if you want to grow, and maybe you don't, I, I'm sure there are people out there that say, I'm, I'm pretty good with the status quo. I've never been one of those. I'm sure you've never been one of those. And most successful companies aren't. Um, of the Fortune 500 list that was founded in 1955, Take a guess, Adam. How many of those companies do you think are still on that list today? Not many. 52. 52 out of five, 450 are gone from the earth or they've been acquired or they've turned into something completely different. That and those change. are companies that, those, yeah, household names that were, they're not around because they just were not reading the tea leaves. They didn't look at the changes in, in, regulations and technology, all the things that they need to be looking at. And they're not just their own business, but they're the entire landscape in order to make those changes. No, change. Change is the, is, is the only constant. And, and we're talking about Zoom. You're, you're so right about the technical and making sure we show up and we appear. But there's also like this whole new dynamic of relationships over video. I remember speaking to a group of Canadian leaders, a couple hundred, and uh, the camera went on and all I could see was myself. And I asked myself this question, what do I do when I make a joke? Um, I'll tell you what I do is I ask when I'm in that situation for a co-host, someone who's on, they don't have to be on the whole time, but periodically show up. So as I'm asking people to hop in the chat and respond, I would say, hey, Adam, tell me what you think about so that's how I, that was my workaround because that's no fun staring at you in that little box alongside your slides or whatever. Yeah, it's hard. And now I that I'm back out on the road again, it's, it's much more, the energy is, is much more satisfying. The energy, the energy. I, I made a bad choice. I laughed at my own jokes. And as I looked at the recording, I thought, that's totally ridiculous. Why am I laughing? Am I, that's obviously super, super fake. Uh, so Libby, let's now go to the CEOs that are flourishing. Right, that have flourished through this. And let's put ourselves into an executive meeting as they look at their goals. And I'm going to go straight to the goals that have key metrics. I'm not talking about the further down. There's thousands, tens of thousands of goals. I'm talking about five to 10 goals, right, that are super critical. And let's say one of them is turnover, right? And we understand turnover could be impacted by benefits, compensation, there's inflation happening, there's all these things. But then an aspect of it is about activating your people to create desired change. It's manager behaviors, peers, when someone is coming in, it's the onboarding, like it's the recruiter, all kinds of aspects that are impacted by your people, right? To create that change, it's got to start with the CEO is the way I think about it. They have to live it, believe it, speak about it. But let's go there for the flourishing CEOs that understand that activating their people is critical to meet their business goals. Do you see them step up to the plate? 
a lot of them I am seeing. I work with a lot of very successful companies that want to be more successful. I'm I'm rarely brought in to coach or consult or speak to a company that is, you know, in big trouble. They need someone other than me. I'm there to talk to people about in success how to be more successful. And those folks are typically the, those are the growth mindset people that really look at changes in opportunity. Uh, they look at things and, and going back to your specific goals, if we're going to look at turnover, we're going to reduce our rate of turnover in a very competitive environment because, you know, talent has the upper hand right now. There are a lot of opportunities. Well, it's got to be, it's got to start with our culture. Why do people want to be here when they can get a similar job elsewhere? What makes us better? Is it the fact that we offer very specific training to up-level their skill set? Do we have a career path that is specific so that they can see, oh, if I start here, I can go next, 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 up the ladder. And there are a lot of organizations that think they have that, but they've never identified it. They've never, never spelled it out. So it's very informal. How do you communicate that to a young manager and an emerging leader? Yeah, when you're ready, you'll move to the next step. Well, what does that mean? What, what's holding me back? What do I need to accomplish? Certainly the hybrid workforce. Companies, not everybody can. There are some jobs where you have to be on the ground, you know, hard to be a nurse from, well, even that. And healthcare has gone so much to telehealth. They're offering hybrid opportunities to the right employees in the right roles. You are, you are much more competitive if you're able to do that. And some people have sort of an old school mentality. Well, that won't work here. You've got to challenge your own thinking. Why won't it work? How do you get around that? It's that idea of, there's a reality, but you've got to, as a CEO, you've got to transcend that somehow. You've got to get outside what is the practical wisdom and say, you know, I'm going to find a way around this and, and figure that out. Practical wisdom, status quo. You know, I remember when I was on this journey eight years ago uh, for, as a contributor for Inc. And I had interviews with the leaders where I would talk about purpose versus profit. And this conversation often was easy to start. Of course, purpose is, of course, all of these things are important. And then as you get into the conversation, how it shows up, how do you activate your values? How do you live it? The further down you go, the bigger the gap. I actually had a meeting where a leader on the other side said, you know, I, I think this interview is over, right? We pay a fair wage, right? We give them plenty of time off. And um, when I was their age, I grinded it out right? I grind. I, I can see, Libby, you agree. Do you think there are fewer executives now uh, who have that mindset who either get it or maybe they understand they won't get it, but it's time to change? I think there are people that are letting go of the command and control mindset, which, you know, is, has been very successful for, for centuries in a clerical situation. You know, you've got the Pope at the top, and everybody else under, and it's a very clear designated pathway, and the same in the military. And they're very successful in those areas, particularly in the military, where you've got a clear chain of command, but teamwork is everything. So they manage to balance those two, that sort of uh, dichotomy of teamwork and succession planning. And so as people let go of some of those old rules and open their minds to, I always think of it in terms of guardrails. So when you've got a CEO or any leader that's managing people, you have to think about where the guardrail is for the individual. 
if you've got a highly skilled, knowledgeable subject matter expert, you know, your guardrail should be way out, way apart from one another. You've got somebody right out of college. They need more supervision. They need more coaching. They need more skills training. You're going to put those guardrails pretty darn close so that you're keeping an eye. And if it's, if you've got a team of 800 people, and I've got lots of clients who do, then you train that down the line. So people understand they've got to allow for failure. They've got to let their team members take risks, mitigate it. You've got to understand what the risk is. You're not going to let your college intern, you know, sort of bet the company on one thing, but you let people fail within acceptable boundaries. There's a risk, right? There's a return. Create the opportunity for failure. And and, and you mentioned different, I call it audiences. You said, what if it's out of school? Different audiences. Tell, tell me if you agree with the following thinking. We just uh, focused on the flourishing CEO. They get it. They live it. They, they, they've gotten everyone on board at the executive level. And now they're ready to cascade the change beyond. And the way that my experience has been the most important audience, the most difficult audience to get through are the managers, right? It's the frozen middle. There's so many names for them. They're also 70% plus contributors to the experience of the employee. They are the variants. Often people don't leave companies, they leave their managers. I know with, with my wife as an example, when, when she has a great manager, I know, right? She's been in the same company for 10 years. When she doesn't have a great manager, my life isn't great. So Libby, would you agree from an audience perspective, now that we've talked about the CEO, the executive suite, we're ready to think about managers or would you go somewhere else? No, I think it's that next level down of leadership. And if your job as the leader is to train the next wave of leaders, you know, whether it's in your job description or not, that is clearly the one of the first and primary responsibilities of a, in a leadership role. And it's to some degree, it, it certainly people leave their managers, but if managers are not set up to lead and manage people organizationally or managed out if they are the wrong candidate or they can't adapt to those the 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 ways the company is positively impacting their people that's also an organizational issue but i think the emerging leaders that next level they've got to understand the mindset of the CEO, just exactly what you're talking about. They've got to understand, I take people through five basic fundamentals of, and they sound simplistic and, and they are, they're, you know, simple to say, hard to do. But first is explaining why is this change necessary? The CEO knows they, they're making the changes, they're establishing it, but that doesn't mean others can read the mind of the CEO. You've got to be very clear about those compelling reasons. Why do we need to change? How do we prepare for change? Then what is that specific roadmap? Uh, and then looking at does this change, whether it's a small change or a huge enterprise-wide change, is it aligned with our culture? Cultures move and adapt differently. So do you know your people? Do you know how they think? You know, sort of how do you roll as a company? Um, are you quick and scrappy or is it a lot harder to turn around a big machine that you've got? And it's also one thing I find a lot of people fail to do, and, and it's, it's an easy fix, is we're pretty good at a senior level of identifying the formal change agents. They've got, you know, change enterprise team or HR or whatever their title is. 
But there are lots of informal change agents, people that want to help drive change. You tap that person on the shoulder and say, hey, I know you're enthusiastic about this and invite them into the process. Not only do you have a willing ally, but you've got somebody who feels honored and seen for the capability to help drive change. It doesn't matter if it's somebody who's you know just out of school. So that's a, a huge benefit in driving those changes and adapting to the culture. It, it's interesting. It's almost like thinking about our society that it changes through formal channels, but even more so through influencers. Of course. Right. I mean, think about you understand the facts of an organization, but if you don't understand the, the soft or the hidden realities of an organization, it's very hard to navigate. Um, a corporate environment, let alone change. And then back to what you initially said, what are your metrics? Not just for the end state, you know, I want to be at X revenue or I want to, you know, I want my retention rates to go up X percent, but what are the metrics for each stage of that change process? It, it's, you spend a year on a change and then you get there and say, well, that didn't work. That what was happening on a quarterly or a monthly or a weekly or a daily basis that what was missing in that change, process change is so hard individuals with kids families organizations everywhere it's super difficult and you also mentioned identifying influencers i don't know if your work took you down the path of organizational network analysis but uh, we've recently been exposed to different data perspectives of how do you find influencers who are active in email they're active in collaboration tools productivity tools, performance tools, you you can identify them and the organizations now have an opportunity to be able to engage them in an entirely different way from a data perspective. So you and I haven't discussed this, but has your work taken you down this, this path? Absolutely. And they're both the data-driven and then the perception of knowing your people-driven. There was a company I was working with recently who uh, exactly this problem and I do, I do a real deep dive into organizations before I go speak for an hour. I have to be informed about what their challenges and problems are and, and how I can contribute. And so I talk to a lot of people before I get there. And I discovered with this one company that happened to do a lot of focus groups about you know, changes and what they were, processes and people and all of that. And I was told by several people, you know, they always bring, we're big on focus groups, but, but our leaders always bring the same people into the focus group. And I said, and so I talked to some of the leaders. Why is that? Well, we know they're going to contribute. We know that they're going to give us value. And I said, well, okay. what about all those people you're leaving out of the equation? You're A, alienating them, and B, you don't know what they've got to say. So mix it up. And I, you know, I can't always indict a company when I'm there to, you know, motivate and help them. But I said, may I just be blunt about that? And they said, please tell us what we need to hear. And I'm talking to a, a group full of about a hundred leaders and said, Hey, here's one area. You can make a change tomorrow. Your next focus group, get those people who you don't know so well, or you haven't heard from even the naysayers who you can learn an awful lot from. And I'm not talking about people with negativity because that'll bring down an entire group, but people have a different point of view. The dissenters that, that may not be a very popular point of view, but why not hear from them and see what they've got to contribute? You gave them a little tough love. I did, it was great, I love it. And the companies that thrive always say, yes, we wanna hear that. We wanna hear what our junior leaders and other leaders had to say. So it's, it's an interesting, I, I kind of feel it's my obligation. If I'm going to go out and lecture, which I literally do to people, I better know where I'm coming from. 
I, I want to take us back to the mindset. And uh, you said, hey, they only talk to a specific subset, right? And, and they, they probably already know that this is going to be an optimistic subset. Uh, a welcoming subset and uh, it's easier right to have that conversation but also maybe there is fear right there's fear about the change there's fear about the response there's fear about what this could trigger and and fear has this like external perspective fear from a professional perspective but I, but I also think especially what happened to all of us over the last few years I you know I, I think there's fear inside right inside what we went through concerns we have again I think we're all concerned with social, political. There's all kinds of things that are now stressing us out and impacting us in a different way. And you and I talked about turning fear into fuel, which I thought was just just an amazing concept and it speaks across your books, speaking, reframing. So Libby, please help. How If, if someone is listening to this for themselves and also for folks around them, how do you reframe? Well, first, you've got to look at your own confirmation bias. Those folks that are bringing in people that are going to back up their point of view, well, that's the easy way. So you've really got to look at what am, who am I listening to? Who am I not listening to is more important. And then there's an interesting study, and it's in my book, You Unstuck, that I cite from Emory University, where they, they were doing brain scans, MRIs on people's brains to see what was being lit up when they also attached them to electrodes and said, you're going to get a shock in the next 30 seconds. And so many of the people, the fear and pain centers of their brains were lit up well before that the shock came, which said to them that um, people are, they also noticed that the resourcefulness and creativity was, that part was being dimmed as the fear was ramping up. So we have this fear prior to the eventuality itself. I haven't even done whatever I'm going to do that is feel that will make me feel stressed or fearful potentially, but I'm already scared of it. Because that, that was part of our DNA, right? If, if the leaves are shaking, we, we suspect it's a tiger. Those people that were, you know, curious what it is may not be here anymore. So, so we, we survived and now we're here, but we've got this equipment that's outdated for the moment. I'm sorry, I, I, I had to jump in. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's the fear center, the amygdala of our brains least developed part of our brain over these many um, centuries, we still react to, you know, fear of a Zoom call, fear mm -hmm. of, of showing up and trying something new, taking a risk at work. All of those things are still activate that same, uh oh, it could be a tiger mm -hmm. response in us. So first of all, we've got to have an awareness that that is what's happening and then understand that we've got to get past that. One way I do it, I'm a big fan of accountability partners and group support is I find that if you have a partner and it can be formal, I had an accountability partner, still do, for many years. Uh, when I started my business, it was a daily conversation with someone who was also mm. beginning it, her own business. And I didn't know they were called accountability partners back then, but that's what it was. What's top of mind today? What are you doing? What are you scared of? What are you challenged by? What did you accomplish yesterday? What's still on your list? How can I help you? All of those things. And when you have that trusted one person or many persons, you can say, you know, I, I'm not so sure about this. I'm not sure I'm heading down the right direction. People, they will give you support and accountability if you ask for it. 
You're you're so right. I have a friend who is in the healthcare system in the C-level suite, and uh, she spent a career focused on psychology, positive psychology, PhD, done you know all kinds of space work in that space to help others. And um, got a call from her a couple weeks ago, and she said, "I'm unable to use anything I've learned. Like I I fell, I fell hard. I see myself falling." Like I have the awareness, I have the insights and the knowledge, and I'm unable to stop myself, right? Because kind of the negative thoughts feed negative thoughts, feed negative thoughts, our body feels the thoughts, then the thoughts connect. It's like, is this just terrible cycle that just continues itself? And you're saying, hey, account- accountability, having conversation outside of you. Sometimes maybe that awareness inside is different than if you're explaining it to somebody else and the impact that person could have on you. That's what coaching is. And, you know, I run a couple of groups and the groups take on a dynamic of their own to support other people. During COVID, when I thought, of course, like everybody else, I had my my meltdown of, oh my gosh, my my whole business that I've built over these 20 years is coming to an end. And, you know, I got my meltdown out of the way quickly. And then I thought, well, I'm not traveling. I'm sure this will convert to virtual speaking, which it did and still is there to some degree. But I thought, let me do what I do. And I just kind of put out a newsletter to whoever was out there and on social media is I'm going to start this coaching group, the Wednesday coaching group, come on in, free, open to anybody. And I really thought we, I had people from all over the US, Australia, Canada, the Caribbean. I thought we would be together for a month or two. And we'd talk about you know what it was like and what the restrictions were and what we were feeling wherever we were. And it went on for a year. And people took their businesses online, they got into new fields, they all of these things. And it was this group of it became a core group of about 30 people who were there. I'm in touch with them all today, that just came together to say, wow, here's what I'm experiencing. And I remember one young woman who had a business built on face to face communication couldn't be done any other way. And we said, well, you don't know that for a fact. Let's use our group as a as a sort of a, you know, let's let's try it out here and pilot a new program that isn't face to face. Worked like a charm. And she's kept that as a key component of her business. And of course, it opens her up to the rest of the world. She doesn't have to be localized anymore. But it was that idea of let's bring people together in support and accountability. I'm just going to challenge you on that and see if your perceptions are right. We're social beings, mm-hmm. right? I'm I'm finding even conversations like this one, right? It's it, I, I went for a walk in my head. You know, I, I see I, I can feel almost the neurons firing in a certain way. But when you're engaged and the energy is flowing and you're connecting, we bring out something in ourselves that often surprises us. Um, Libby, what I'd like to talk about next is let's go into the future. Right. The podcast is the future of people initiatives. We've talked about the past a bit. We talked about the current state. We divided this, the, the executives into different groups. We focused on the flourishing group. If you were to look out, you pick maybe a year, a couple of years out, what, what do you think will be some of the drivers of change or what are the things that will change in the next couple of years when it comes to how change is showing up inside organizations? Well, I've, I've never been a technologist. I've always been a word person and a people person, but I think technology will be the driver 
of businesses. And even those of us who do not see ourselves, we're not trained technologists. You certainly are. So you know a lot more about it than I do. But everybody has to be literate in technology. You've got to understand, you don't have to know the ins and outs of your data stack and you know all of that. But you've got to be fluent in how technology drives your business. So we've got to understand that just, just like when uh, finances went global, it was no longer localized or even national. It's if you don't understand the economic lay of the land, that, that we're all interconnected, uh, then you're missing a huge component of business. And I don't claim to be an expert in those areas. Nobody's ever going to hire me to help them with their financial model or their supply chain. But in terms of how it impacts people, we can't be afraid of it. You've got to be up to date, not necessarily with the nuances, but where I sit, I've never dealt with anybody in cryptocurrency, but I've got to know what it is and the basics of what that means, because that's a huge part of our world or whatever that is. So I think that's one of the huge drivers. The recognition that what we've said forever, but not necessarily acted upon, that people are our greatest asset, you know, mm -hmm. in quotes. People have to really take that to heart. Um, we've gone through some major, just huge changes. And leaders have had to learn to be more compassionate, even if it's had to been trained into them. We've Once you look into somebody's kitchen or bedroom or home office, and you've spent time with them seeing you know, their kids and their elders and their pets popping around in the background, We've had to be much more open to talking about feelings and resilience and what are the real circumstances of your life. And, you know, women have known this for a long time. This, the caretaking and elder care and children and all of that has mostly, it's changed. And the first book I ever wrote about was, was about men as primary caregivers and women as primary breadwinners. Mm. And it was the first book on the subject. And boy, did I have some people not liking me at all, because that was <laughs> not the traditional model. But that, well, that was great fun, especially on radio. But um, we've got to take all that very seriously. And we've got to adapt to people and families and outside interests and all of those things. And the other thing, in terms of people's pathway, if I had been able to change careers and take my knowledge, my skills, my wisdom with me when I worked in the Hollywood studios, I'd still be there. That wasn't okay. You didn't do that. You didn't say, hey, you're really good at this. I bet you'd be good at this. Why don't we spend you know, three months or six months training you up in this other area? I managed to make a shift, which was really rare in the industry. I went from heading communications to taking a step down and sideways into television production and development, which was considered, oh, you can't do that if you don't have a creative background. Well, you know, I'm just as creative as the next person or more so than a lot of people. And I, I, it took me three months of finagling to get into a step down position to try something new. And then ultimately that was my beginning of the, my exit from the corporate world. But companies that are aware of the training they've put into the investment in their people, and the fact that we don't want these great people to leave, we want them to have the opportunity to do something new because they're intellectually curious, they're trainable, they're hardworking, um, they're resourceful, and they're loyal, and we should be the same. Companies that have figured that out and institutionalized it, 
they're going to have that retention issue that you mentioned. That's going to be minuscule inside those companies. Fascinating. I'm I'm tempted to converge the two. A quick clarification. So my my background finance entrepreneurship, and you're so right. I find myself being a co-founder of a technology company surrounded by brilliant technology folks, and often throughout my days, I think of my new career. Now it's been five years as a technologist, even even though, you know, and I'm learning every day. But but Libby, I'd like to combine those two. Do you think? That the futures where technology fully allows organizations to be able to activate their people, to be able to truly show people are our greatest asset and not just say it? Well, I think that comes more from the people than the technology. You know, we are driving and building this technology. It's not leading us. So when people are, when they believe that, and there are companies, you know, I mean, look at the head of Patagonia just gave his company to a nonprofit oh. cost billion dollars. I mean, that's a clear indication of somebody who means it. He is walking his talk. So there are examples of that everywhere of people that do give back, that give to other causes. In his case, it was climate change. Um, and, and we've seen that from the Warren Buffetts and many others of the world. But People that do that within the company and say, I'm investing in you and your future. Yeah, I think it can be changed. And they've got to be very selective about who they hire and who they bring in to run those divisions. If you don't have a shared mindset and purpose and ethic, and purpose can be, purpose is also, like you said, how do we, you know, the conversation was over when you stopped talking profit and started talking purpose. But now when you align your people with your purpose, even if they never see their end user. I mean, I see more and more conferences that I go to, maybe it's a, a medical supplier technology company, where they bring someone whose life has been saved or quality of life has been changed to say, hey, here's what your pacemaker did for me. You know, and then everybody can say, oh, yeah. Uh, and, and maybe it's through a video. Maybe they don't have 20,000 people at their conference, but they streamed that home, which is another great use of technology in terms of communication. And people say, you know, I worked on that chain. I worked on that somewhere along the way. I had an impact on that. So it's it's up to leaders to make that purpose part of the organizational DNA. And maybe you have to think about it. Maybe you have to think about how you communicate and and make that part of the organization, but it can be done and it should be done. Amazing, Libby. And it also is an amazing takeaway for our audience. How do you take purpose? How do you how do you translate it and what it means to the individuals? How do you give them a line of sight that their work matters? So, uh, you know, Libby, maybe what would be your final message to our listeners as they're contemplating change and what it means to them and their organization? Well, I think I would sum that up, Adam, in a, in a quote that became the title of, of my book, Traveling Hopefully, which was my own journey of change. You know, I'd mentioned I grew up in a under pretty difficult circumstances. And, and to me, it was all about, I'll just make tomorrow a better day. I mean, as a kid, yeah. it was like, I'll just make tomorrow a better day. And it became a way of life. And it's a Robert Louis Stevenson quote, and he was a great adventurer as well as an author. And he said, to travel, hopefully, is a better thing than to arrive. And it is to me, and I named my book Traveling Hopefully after that, but it became about this, this constant journey, this continuing iteration 
that we can never rest on the status quo. And there are people that that works for. Uh, and as I, as I said before, we're not among those. And the most successful companies and people are not because we want to continue to evolve and grow, whether that's in our personal life and our advocacy and volunteerism or on the job. It's really about looking at that adventure ahead and knowing that, you know, this is not a frightening change, but this is a grand adventure and I'm on it and I'm all in for it. To the great adventure, Libby. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you too. This has been amazing. Thank you. I, I really appreciate the time. I know we could go on for hours, but um, I, I think our time at the hike in the mountains coming to an end. So uh, uh, until our next hike, Libby. We've done our 10,000 steps and it was a great joy. Thank you, Adam. All right. Take care. Bye.